a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I know it looks pretty bleak right now. I actually read a couple of articles yesterday that I was like, man, I'm glad I don't have any sharp objects nearby or tall buildings or bridges <laughs> to leap off of. Sometimes it really does seem a little bit hopeless. But I'm here to tell you there is there is always hope. And the reason I say there is hope is because at some level, I like to remind myself who is really in charge. And I mean this in the most universal sense. God is still in charge. And things are playing out right now that uh, I think it's pretty safe to say we're, we're going to see some, some interesting times, probably some difficult times, like uh, we have not seen in, oh, I don't know, about, uh, well, since the last fourth turning. The Great Depression, World War II, yep, that was the last big fourth turning event, and we've got something very similar that's shaping up, maybe maybe even bigger from the looks of things, that's shaping up to play out for us. Now, that means that uh, you and I, no matter how, uh, how modest we may try to be, we still have a role that we can play, because personal character and the ability to, to be a, a solid leader no matter where you happen to be standing, to use your influence as wisely as you can, that's there for every one of us. And as these uh, fourth-turning crises play out, that's the kind of people that are going to make the difference. So I would suggest uh, we focus on uh, self-government, we focus on character. We're actually going to be talking about this coming up in just a few moments. But before we go there, we'll get to that in just a moment. I want to talk about one of the more painful lessons that we have learned in the last couple of years. And it was the lesson that Silicon Valley, the big tech giants, clearly are not on our side. Got a great article from Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. How could we have been so naive about big tech? Now, this is a fairly lengthy article. So I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but I will include it in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com and encourage you to find some time to, to read and digest this one for yourself. Jeffrey Tucker writes, <clears throat> excuse me, the 1998 movie Enemy of the State, starring Gene Hackman and Will Smith, seemed like science fiction at the time. Now he says, why I didn't regard that movie, which still holds up in nearly every detail, as a warning, I do not know. It pulled the curtain back on the close working relationship between national security agencies and the communications industry, spying, censorship, blackmailing, and worse. Today, he says it seems not just a warning, but a description of reality. Well, there's no longer any doubt at all about the symbiotic relationship between big tech, the digital communications industry in particular, and government. The only issue we need to debate is which of the two sectors are more decisive in driving the loss of privacy, free speech, and liberty in general. And not only that, Jeffrey Tucker says, I've been involved in many debates over the years, always taking the side of technology over those who warned of the coming dangers. He says, I was a believer, a techno-utopian, and could not see where this was headed. And so Jeffrey Tucker says, the lockdowns were the great shock for me. 
not only for the unconscionably uh, draconian policies imposed on the country so quickly, but he says the shock was intensified by how all the top tech companies immediately enlisted in the war on freedom of association. And he wonders, why? Some combination of industry ideology, which shifted over 30 years from a founding libertarian ethos to become a major force for techno-tyranny plus industry self-interest, How better to promote digital media consumption than to force half the workforce to stay at home? So these were some of the forces that were at work. Now, he says, personally, for him, it felt like betrayal of the most profound sort. Jeffrey Tucker writes, only 12 years ago, I was still celebrating the dawning of the Jetsons world and dripping with disdain for the Luddites among us who refused to get with it and buy and depend on all the latest gizmos. He says, it seemed inconceivable to me at the time that such wonderful tools could ever be taken over by power and used as a means of social and economic control. The whole idea of the Internet was to overthrow the old order of imposition and control. The Internet, he says, was anarchy, to his mind, and therefore had some built-in resistance to all attempts to monopolize it. And yet here we are. In fact, just this weekend, the New York Times carries a terrifying story about a California tech professional who, on request, texted a doctor's office a picture of his son's infection that required a state of undress and found himself without email, documents, or even a phone number. An algorithm made the decision. Now, Google has yet to admit wrongdoing. It's one story, but emblematic of a massive threat that affects all of our lives. Amazon servers are reserved only for the politically compliant, while Twitter censorship at explicit behest of the CDC, National Institute of Health, is legion. Facebook and Instagram can and does body bag anyone who steps out of line. And of course, the same is true of YouTube. So keep in mind, these companies make up the bulk of all internet traffic. As for escaping... Any truly private email cannot be domiciled in the U.S., and our one-time friend, the smartphone, operates now as the most reliable citizen surveillance tool in history. Yeah, I know, that's, that's kind of a daunting thought, but he's not wrong. Jeffrey Tucker says, in retrospect, it's rather obvious that this would happen because it's happened with every other technology in history, from weaponry to industrial manufacturing. What begins as a tool of mass liberation and citizen empowerment eventually comes to be nationalized by the state, working with the largest and most politically correct connected firms. World War I was the best example of just such an outrage in the 20th century. The munitions manufacturers were the only real winners of that one, while the state acquired new powers, of which it never really let go. Now he goes into <clears throat> some of the common, uh, the contemporary commentary on what was, what was going on during the Great War. And there were surprising, you know, the the insights that so many people had at that time. Mark Twain, uh, you know, uh, reading about uh, the the folks who who had optimism for the future. Uh, for instance, he says one of my favorite writers, Mark Twain, had had optimism about the future future, but had also great moral outrage toward the Spanish American War and the remnants of family feuds in the South and reactionary class biases everywhere in his writings as well with a profound sense of disapproval that these signs of revanchist thinking and behaving were just a generation away from full expiration. He shared in the naivete of the times. He could not have imagined the carnage of the coming total war that made the Spanish-American War look like a practice drill. 
And the same outlook on the future was held by people like Oscar Wilde, William Graham Summer, William Gladstone, Oberon Herbert, Lord Acton, Hilaire Belloc, Herbert Spencer, and all the rest. So I'm going to skip ahead here and just kind of cut to the chase. The question that I know is on a lot of people's minds, including my own, is, okay, what do we do? You know, big tech clearly is not with us. They have the advantage of, uh, you know, 30-plus years of uh, building massive companies that now have their fingers in many aspects of our lives. So do we give up? Well, Jeffrey Tucker says never. During lockdowns and medical mandates, the power of the state and its corporate allies truly reached its apotheosis and failed us miserably. And so he says our times cry out for justice, for clarity, and for making a difference to save ourselves and our civilization. We should approach this great project with our eyes wide open and with ears to hear different points of view on how we get from here to there. And what he's getting at here is we all have to rethink our, our political and ideological opinions due to the astonishing policy trends of our time. Simple and settled as those opinions might have been, it's time to, time to evaluate them. He says, for this reason, Brownstone publishes thinkers on all sides. And this is true. They really have been a great resource in that they're not just singing a one-note symphony and not everybody's marching in lockstep. But they've had some of the best, most factual information to counter that official narrative that can brook absolutely no competing point of view. So I guess what I'm recommending here is if you haven't already subscribed or you don't regularly visit the Brownstone Institute online, it's just brownstone.org. You're missing out on a really remarkable resource. And this is particularly true as it applies to all the things that have gone on uh, regarding the coronavirus. So if you want to hear the breakdown of, you know, why the lockdowns were damaging, why they weren't necessary, uh, 150 plus different studies showing that masks and, and the mandates really did nothing to slow the spread of the virus, you'll find some good, credible second opinions. Now, notice I'm not telling you, you believe everything you read on there because that's really your decision to make. But if you're looking for some good, credible second opinions... You could do a lot worse. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. By now, you should know Garage Door Pros is one of my sponsors, and it's a sponsor that I'd particularly like to steer my listeners in the southwest corner of Utah toward doing business with them. This means if you live in St. George or Cedar City or Mesquite or Colorado City, talk to Garage Door Pros for installation, service, and repair on garage doors, both commercially as well as residentially. If you're looking for an insulated garage door, talk to these guys. They have very quick response, much faster lead time than other companies can give you. Oh, and these are American-made garage doors. You can call 435-525-2773 or go to garagedoorproservices.com. 
Okay, so in the first segment, I mentioned a little bit about character. And I know that uh, this this may get tiresome to some people, but I, I really believe the people who have dialed into the remedy for what's going on around us, all the crazy stuff that we have no control over, all the things that you know could go wrong, that are going wrong, the one place where you and I have undeniable influence and to a large degree control is what kind of person will we be? What kind of character will we develop? I want to share with you an article from Christopher Roach. This is from American Greatness. And, you know, tweaking the rules and the regulations to try to fix our bad officials or the corrupted systems that we're currently living under, just not enough. It's not going to fix it. Character is what will fix what bothers us, or what bothers us, <laughs> will fix what what is is challenging us. It does bother me, though. It's it's a challenge, and, and I'm very bothered by it. Here's what Christopher Roach says. He says, the political system seems to be falling apart. We can no longer address challenges in a sensible way. Elections are shrouded in controversy and leave elected official, officials, rather, bereft of a mandate. And, it's, and ideological divisions, he says, make it almost impossible to reach any consensus on the boundaries of government action. So while the problem is sometimes described as one of missing laws or the wrong kinds of procedures, the crux of the issue is the character and judgment of the decision makers itself a reflection of the character and judgment of the people. Kind of makes sense, wouldn't you say? The ones who sent him there, they don't have character or judgment Well, they're going to get the kind of government they deserve. So Christopher Roach says, Nothing man-made is perfect, including the American Constitution and the political system that's grown up under it. He says, Our system, like every system, ultimately depends on the quality of the people, both in the citizenry and within the government. In fact, he says, An enduring myth of the founders is that they conceived of the Constitution as an elaborate Rube Goldberg contraption that would channel men's energies in a socially beneficial direction even when populated with immoral and selfish political actors. Now, this, uh, this view arises from a superficial reading of Publius's argument in Federalist 51. Quote, But the great security against a gradual concentration of the several powers in the same department consists in giving to those who administer each department the necessary constitutional means and personal motives to resist encroachments of the others. The provision for defense must in this, as in all other cases, be made commensurate to the danger of attack. Ambition must be made to counteract ambition. The interest of man must be connected with the constitutional rights of the place. It may be a reflection on human nature that such devices should be necessary to control the abuses of government, but what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? This policy of supplying by opposite and rival interests the defect of better motives might be traced through the whole system of human affairs, private as well as public. End quote. So while the founders were willing to make use of ambition and self-interest, they had no illusion that these forces by themselves would work to make liberty to maintain liberty forever, particularly in a system of self-government. In the same essay, the author remarks, as there is a degree of depravity in mankind which requires a certain degree of circumspection circumspection rather, and distrust, so there are other qualities in human nature which justify a certain portion of, self, of esteem rather, and confidence. 
Republican government presupposes the existence of these qualities in a higher degree than in any other form. Now, believe it or not, that view is not an outlier. A belief in the importance of virtue, both among the governors and the governed, was practically universal. I mean, George Washington, in his first inaugural address, stated, There is no truth more thoroughly established than that there exists in the economy and course of nature an indissoluble union between virtue and happiness, between duty and advantage, between the genuine maxims of an honest and magnanimous policy and the solid rewards of public prosperity and felicity. Now, of course, a government of laws is still run by men. Even a government of laws needs men in order to interpret, administer, and enforce those laws and to carry out policy. So designing a constitution where ambition must be made to counteract ambition was only conceived as a temporary bulwark against abuse and outgrowth of the broader separation of powers principle. But this mechanism cannot fully and permanently protect against bad leaders or a degraded, dishonorable, and disunited people. There's always room for abuse, and the risk of abuse is, of such abuse is an unavoidable feature of a government sufficiently energetic to govern effectively. So consider the problem of applying the ordinary modes of criminal prosecution to a former president, recently defended by Attorney General and uh, failed Supreme Court nominee Merrick Garland. He gave a very defensive speech about the matter and refused to answer questions, which suggests that explaining himself to the American people is beneath him. That was bad enough, yet a typical sign of the times. But Garland also made little mention of the double standards, prior practice, and gravity of the situation at hand. In other words, his public appearances revealed him as neither a boring technocrat nor the esteemed wise man able to restore confidence in government. Rather, he came across as a snobbish partisan hack. Now, that said, most of the proposed solutions to this abuse invite other kinds of abuse. And while Trump has been the victim of a six-year partisan witch hunt, it would be an error to place presidents completely off-limits to law enforcement as this would undermine the principle of equal justice that's the keystone of our legal regime. Now, if the principle of non-prosecution were taken too far, it would make the political class more generally a law unto itself and a permanent aristocracy. So it is probably unavoidable that one's partisan opponents may later have the power to initiate criminal proceedings. Until now, respect for the American people, deference to the impeachment process, and a concern for retaliation kept these kinds of activities in check. Another solution sometimes proposed is to appoint supposedly neutral experts in situations like this, such as an independent counsel. But the problem is that such special prosecutors can go rogue. Far from being neutral, they are often ambitious and Javert-like. Consider the recent runaway investigation led by another overrated D.C. wise man, Robert Mueller, long after he discovered that Russian collusion allegations were a hoax. So I got to jump ahead here because I'm, I'm running up against the clock, but a multiplication of laws and rules is usually the sign of a fraying, disunified and corrupted society. Societies with a coherent culture and shared values, they resolve most disputes through informal mechanisms like reputation, shared sense of fair play, and conversation. But as a society starts to drift apart, rules expand in a last-ditch effort to fix a broken system. And the point here is, Christopher Roach is saying, 
Tweaking the rules and regulations will not revive the current system, nor will they save us from bad officials or the burden of self-government. But he says, this reality should encourage us to adopt a new system that identifies and elevates men of virtue, energy, and ability into power. I got to admit, as a political agnostic, I'm really not looking towards politics to provide any kind of a solution at all. But I do agree. If we put greater emphasis on, on putting people into representative positions who actually have virtue and character, I think it would definitely change the tone of things. But we've got to have those qualities first. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'd like to talk for a moment about HSLAmmo.com. That would be my friend Spencer Worthington. And, you know, I love to point to him as, as one of my favorite American success stories, just that this is a guy who had a dream of, I want to start an ammo manufacturing company. Not an easy thing in and of itself. Believe me, there's a lot of red tape and a lot of regulatory hurdles that have to be worked around. But uh, my point is he did it. And he has, has kept it going and grown it. And it has thrived even during some fairly challenging times. And what Spencer does best, in addition to creating opportunity within his community, is he creates high-quality, new and remanufactured ammunition. So if you find yourself in need of ammunition at some point, I would appreciate it if you went to hslammo.com. Very proud to have him as a sponsor. Okay, the truth is often hidden in plain view. I got a great example of this. This was an article from Jeff Thomas from International Man. And this is one that I think a lot of us can relate to because it's probably going to relate to some coins you have right there in your pocket. He says, in 1796, the U.S. issued its first quarter dollar. Now, on the obverse, it displayed the image of Lady Liberty. Above the image, in case there was any doubt about the message, the word liberty was prominently displayed. The coin was minted from silver, 90%, and copper, 10%. Over the years, the design of the U.S. quarter changed repeatedly. Then in 1932, a new quarter was issued that featured the image of American founding father George Washington. As before, the word liberty appeared above his image, a continuing reminder of the primary principle upon which the U.S. was founded. And as before, the coin was minted from silver, 90%, and copper, 10%. Okay, so far, so good. The quarter remained unchanged until... 1965. The new quarter was the same in every way except it contained no silver whatsoever. It now contained only copper and nickel. At today's metals prices, uh, the intrinsic value of the quarter dropped suddenly to about 1% of its previous value. Now, Jeff Thomas says conceptually, the American people should have been outraged as they had effectively lost the ability to hold real redeemable wealth. The coin they would hold in the future would not have the value of silver. It would be a mere token. The new coin represented no more than a promise of value on the part of the U.S. government. However, there was almost no outcry. The reason? Because the new quarter still retained the same purchasing power it had when it was made of silver. 
So as long as the quarter was perceived by all and sundry as having value for the purpose of payment, most Americans were content to accept the switch. Now, in 1999, the quarter's design did change. The word liberty was removed above the head from above the head of Washington, and in its place the were the words United States of America. Now, it might have been argued at the time that those words needed to be on the quarter to remind holders of the coin what nation had issued it. However, Jeff Thomas says those words had always appeared on the reverse of the Washington quarter, and he says, I recently saw a 1999 quarter which had those words on both sides. A very odd redundancy for a coin which, by its very size, has little space to spare, even for essential information. The word liberty was still in evidence on the new coin, but it had been moved lower down beneath George Washington's chin and was now much smaller. It would seem one reason for the change in design had been to diminish the importance of liberty as an American concept. Later on, when the state quarters were issued, the mint dropped the United States of America on the reverse and retained it on the obverse. In any case, as in 1965, there was no outcry from the American people, again, for the same reason as before. The coin retained the same purchasing power, so the change in design was simply not an issue. Now, he says, readers of this publication may have a different slant on the subject. It could be argued that the two changes in the American quarter reflect the changes in the U.S. as a nation. And Jeff Thomas says, there can be no doubt that the value of U.S. currency in general has been dramatically reduced in purchasing power since 1932. It's also true that none of the U.S. currency, whether paper notes or metal coins, have any true redeemable value. They have only perceived value, which is subject to dramatic change depending upon economic conditions. In the last century, the unbacked currencies of some 20 nations have been rendered valueless as a result of hyperinflations. Now, in 1796, when the quarter was first minted, the quarter was in itself wealth. The paper banknotes that came later starting in 1861 were initially fiat during the war, but were quickly replaced by notes backed by and redeemable for silver. The redemption of U.S. banknotes for silver bullion ended in 1968. So today, if a U.S. citizen wants to build up his wealth, he cannot do so by holding the currency of his country. All U.S. currency, whether paper or metal, only represents his faith in the currency to retain its value, which it is unquestionably losing. Therefore, merely by dealing every day in U.S. currency, the holder is paying a hidden tax and his wealth is diminished accordingly. Yikes. How's that for a brisk little blast of truth? As to U.S. liberty, Jeff Thomas says, many would agree that that too has been devalued, particularly after 1999. Laws like the Patriot Act of 2001, its expansion in 2011, and the National Defense Authorization Act of 2011 have stripped Americans of their constitutional rights on a wholesale basis. Now, he says there's an old saying that the best place to hide something is in plain view. If true, a reminder of what the U.S. citizen has lost may be found in plain view, merely by reaching into your pocket and examining your change. He's right, by the way. And there are people who are starting to wake up to this. I, I, I don't mean to start any kind of a rush towards, you know, precious metals here, but um, I've seen a couple of interviews in the last week saying that, uh, wow, precious metals, 
are flying out of the vaults. In other words, governments, private individuals, a lot of people who are nervous about what's happening to the money supply, not just in America, but elsewhere, are saying, you know, maybe I do want something of tangible value, something I can actually put my hands on that is going to hold value. Well, traditionally, that's been gold and silver. So I'll let you make your own choices. I still believe, even though I know there's been a lot of volatility, I still think it would be wise to do some work in crypto, to have some degree of crypto, just uh, if, if for no other reason, because it's decentralized and it's something that government cannot get their hands on. Now, this is assuming you have your own crypto keys and you manage them yourself. But isn't it curious how, you know, a 1965 quarter or pre-1965 quarter, you drop it on the counter, it makes a different noise. There's a, there's a musical ring to silver. People who work cashier positions actually get really good at picking this up. Someone drops a coin and ping, they know immediately, ooh, that's, that's legit silver. And if they're smart, they keep a you know, handful of quarters on hand. So when somebody turns in a real pre-1964, you know, 90% silver coin, they can swap it out for a quarter. And this is legal to do. But it's also really smart because that uh, silver quarter actually has value. Whereas the, you know, nickel-coated slug, I don't even know if they use copper anymore. You know, that's, it has as much value as we believe it has. Which, as long as it's working in the vending machine, I guess is, you know, going to work well for us. All right. Coming up in our next segment, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the CDC finally admitting the science on natural immunity. And also... I want to share with you uh, an article that Brandon Smith has written about how blue states really have been very upfront about defying the federal government, about interfering with federal agencies and keeping them from operating with impunity. His recommendation is that maybe it is time for red states to follow the lead of those blue states. And look, I'm going to tell you right up front, I don't know if this needs to be so much a red and blue issue. I think the states have authority that they should be asserting. Not just on the basis of red and blue. Well, there's a blue president, therefore we got to stand up as a red state. But simply because sometimes when the federal government is acting beyond its proper limits, it's up to the states to interpose themselves between the federal government and their citizens. Now, you may be wondering, well, why don't more states do this in the first place? And the answer, of course, is because they love that federal money. There's a very special place at the trough just for this state or that state. And if you want to line up and, you know, gorge yourself like the other states, you got to play the game. So when those federal dollars are standing there to be distributed and, uh, you know, you're, you're wanting your share, you've got to be willing to do what the person handing out that money is is requiring. I believe there's a term for that. It's called strings attached. Anyway, we'll touch on both of these stories coming up here. If you haven't subscribed to my show notes, please consider going to thebrianheidshow.com. Down at the bottom of the day's show notes, you'll see a big subscribe button. All it's going to ask for is your email. Share it with me. I will not share it with anybody else, but I will send you my notes. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And once again, we are back. Once again, I'd encourage you, please check out lifesavingfood.com. You'll find them listed in my sponsors in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I don't know why, but this just seems like a really good time to to know that you've got plan B, you know, fully fleshed out and you've uh, made some provisions for yourself and your family just because there's a lot of weird stuff that is shaping up that I think could uh, could make things interesting quickly. It goes very slow until until it reaches that tipping point. And I think we're not quite at the tipping point, but it sure feels like one is fast approaching. So a couple things to, to touch on. First and foremost, yes, I am happy to see that Dr. Fauci will be stepping down at the end of the year. And I, I kind of question the, the timing. I don't think the Republicans, you know, have a slam dunk. Uh, we're going to take, take things over here, you know, in these midterm elections. I think the public is very primed to support the GOP if the GOP will give them a reason to. But it ain't a fait accompli. Not yet. So I'm I'm not quite I'm not quite convinced the Republicans have got this thing locked down. Clearly, though, there are those on the Democratic side who are very concerned because as hard as they have been pushing and as hard as they've been trying to get things done, Republicans are going to come in and the pendulum is going to snap back the other direction, and it's going to be tough. And people like Dr. Anthony Fauci could very well find themselves sitting in a criminal trial, their own criminal trial, based on what they did over the course of the uh, COVID pandemic and the recommendations that they made. Now, I could sit here and focus on Fauci and just how distasteful I find the guy. You know, I don't care for Dr. Fauci. I I think he is uh, he's a good indication of what a, a bureaucrat is all about. 54 years of, you know, working at the public teat, enriching himself, and he's getting ready to move on to perhaps even bigger money in the next phase of his career. I think the the personal the personal disgust that I feel comes from just the slipperiness. Whenever Dr. Fauci's being interviewed, whenever he's being questioned, there's just a slimy, lawyerly, glib it's it's like it's like Bill Clinton took a turn for evil. I know. Yes. <laughs> he just he always has an answer and there's always some kind of sophistry at play and it's just it's infuriating. Especially when you hear him saying, "I never recommended that anybody lock anything down." Uh yeah, actually you did, sir. We've we've got the receipts. Nonetheless, here's the good news. The CDC finally has admitted the Science on Natural Immunity. Got an article that I'll link to here from John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education. And he talks about uh, what a development this is. And one of the things that, that should be of particular interest is by recognizing that natural immunity puts people on uh, pretty much an equal footing, if not a better footing, than those who have taken the jab. That should mean the death of vaccine mandates. I still can't believe that there are people out there who were kicked out of their jobs, still are being kicked out of their jobs because of vaccine mandates. 
I don't know why, but to to me, and again, this I I don't mean to harp again on on Fauci, but this is why Nuremberg type tribunals need to be convened because that's a violation of the Nuremberg Code. This is really ugly stuff. And it's not so much, yeah, we got to make an example out of them. It's we've got to make sure people know that this is not okay and it will not be rewarded and it cannot happen again. I would encourage you, please read John uh, John Miltimore's article. He points out how, you know, nine months ago, the CDC was singing a very different tune than they're singing right now. Here you had CDC epidemiologist Greta Massetti explaining to reporters just last week that uh, what uh, many have been saying for more than a year, both vaccines and prior infection offer protection from severe symptomatic COVID. This is what Massetti told reporters, quote, both prior infection and vaccination confer some protection against severe illness. So it really makes the most sense to not differentiate with our guidance or our recommendations based on vaccination status at this time. Now, John Miltimore says because of this, the CDC's new guidelines treat vaccinated and unvaccinated people the same. Less than a year after declaring COVID a pandemic of the unvaccinated, the Biden administration is building a midterm campaign about the triumphant return to normalcy. Yes, of course, just in time for the midterms. Sorry, but the timing is uh, always quite suspect. Anyway, I hope you'll check out John Miltimore's article. I love this line here. The decision to take a vaccine should only ever belong to one person. That is the individual. He's not trying to argue that vaccines aren't effective or that they don't offer protection from COVID. And he does point out, though, that the evidence suggests that vaccines give people who've had COVID more protection. Though, like all vaccines, they don't come without risks. But the idea is it should have been our decision in the first place and those who would have forced it upon us at the cost of jobs or, you know, simply the ability to walk in a store or to enter some other public space. You know, I, I'm sorry. I should, I should probably just let it go. Forgive and forget, but those people are still out there still feeling like, but I have a right to impose this on others. I would like to uh, disabuse them of that notion. All right, one final note here. I'm going to recommend check out Brandon Smith's article, Should Red States Block Federal Agencies from Operating with Impunity? Blue states do it. And this is this can be kind of a tricky place because, well, you know, the, the people operating on the blue side of the political spectrum often will, will find people who are, how can I put this, receptive to the idea that uh, the ends justify the means. Whatever ends, you know, whatever you have to do by hook or by crook, you know, then, then you ought to be able to do it to get your way. I don't hold to that. And I don't want to see red states starting to, uh, you know, flirt with that same idea. Well, whatever we do, as long as we get the ends that we want, it's justified. But Brandon Smith's point is there are sanctuary cities. This is a concept that's long been implemented with predominantly leftist states in America, and it's nothing new. Any operations by Department of Homeland Security or ICE, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, within blue states to arrest and deport illegal immigrants are often met with aggressive resistance by Democrat-run city governments. 
Now, Brandon Smith says, keep in mind, foreign individuals have no right under the Constitution to reside in the U.S. without first gaining citizenship. Leftists say they don't care. They're happy to welcome millions of illegals into the country with open arms in direct violation of the laws protecting our borders, as well as the stability of our economy and society. And he says they do this not because they're naively humanitarian. It's because they see it as a means to import a massive voting bloc that will give leftists whatever they want because they believe they will give get citizenship rather in exchange. So if they didn't want millions of illegal votes, the Democrats would not be constantly attempting to block voter ID laws. Now, his point is obviously the political left is openly hostile to federal agencies when those agencies happen to obstruct their agenda. Though it's rare these days for the blue states and feds to be at odds, it does happen. ICE and other agencies might try to find ways around sanctuary status, but there's never any question of treason or insurrection. Blue state politicians don't get raided or arrested as national enemies. Now, he goes into some thoughts on, you know, what's going on with the, the Mar-a-Lago raid, the January 6th trials, although Brandon says he thinks it's mostly a circus and a distraction. Nothing substantial is going to come from these events. This is about optics. It's about influencing public perception. But he says what he does care about is the increasing tide of federal aggression and the use of federal agencies as a political club to intimidate or beat down opponents of the leftists or globalists. So it's possible that maybe the states do need to enforce some kind of a moratorium on federal agency operations until the threats of political abuse are addressed. He says it's not possible to reach an understanding with leftists at this time because they operate through a prism of zealotry. They cannot be reasoned with because they believe that everything they're doing is righteous. No violation of individual rights is off the table. So it's better to separate and prevent them from implementing malicious policies within our state borders until this conflict is resolved. Otherwise, he says, a lot of people could get hurt. I don't know. I do like the idea of states' rights and of states engaging in interposition to protect their citizens from federal overreach. The question is, can they keep it under control once they do it? This is The Brian Hyde Show.